We are in the middle of a short four-week series in a short but convicting little book of the Bible, the book of Haggai. So if you would, take your Bibles and turn there with me now. Haggai is one of the books typically referred to as the minor prophet. Not because of their minor uh, nature of importance, though we often treat them as minor in importance, but they're referred to as minor simply because they're short compared to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. They're minor in size, not in importance. But what are 12 separate books in our English Bibles? That is Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. They are in the Hebrew text one book called the Book of the Twelve. And it's likely that these books while they were written by the individual prophets themselves, they were later compiled into a larger literary unit for a purpose. There's some order, there's some structure to it. The first six of those books of the twelve, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, and Micah, they go into great detail on the covenant sins of Israel as well as the sins of the nations. So they really serve to indict Israel and the rest of the nations for their sins. But after having indicted Israel and the other nations, the next three, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah, these three prophets, they proclaim the just punishment due upon those nations. The nation of Israel, the other nations of the whole world. But then the last three, they give hope. Future hope of restoration after such severe judgments are announced. So Haggai, in this organization, was put towards the end, not necessarily because of the chronology, though he does come later in the chronology, but it was placed there because of the hope that it gave the exiles and the remaining Jews after the severe judgment of God. It gave them hope. And we can draw hope from this as well, looking to God to fulfill all of His promises in Scripture and those that apply to us as well. And in particular today, we are going to get into Haggai chapter 2, which the Lord purposes to encourage, to comfort, and give His people hope to look to the future when God would restore the nation of Israel and the kingdom. And so as we come to this text in chapter 2, we as a repentant people, we're to be encouraged, we are to be comforted, and given great hope in our hard work of doing God's ministry. Doing the often discouraging work of building the church. He wants us to be encouraged and comforted. And I think it's safe to say that we all, as we have served in churches throughout the years, have been discouraged in our service at some point. And personally, I think... We are all generally here at Grace Church right now encouraged in our service, especially after this morning. We've seen some the labor, the fruit of hard labor produced in some of the people that were baptized earlier. Very encouraging. I'm encouraged as we see people who are growing spiritually more and more mature in our congregation and sanctified. People getting saved, coming here, finding our church from wandering around in what it seems the wilderness, looking for a good church. But even in the midst of serving in a generally excited environment where we see fruit and growth, there are discouraging times. We are still serving alongside other sinners. There's relational conflicts. We still sin. We're still sinned against. There can be times of discipleship where a person that we're working with shows little or no growth. Even very discouraging times when some of those people end up being disciplined out of the church. And sometimes we can just be so focused on the task at hand, the task of maybe moving chairs, making coffee, mowing the lawn even. We can grow weary of those tasks and become discouraged because we've lost sight of the larger picture. Well, Haggai, as he delivers a message from the Lord, is going to clarify 
that big picture for us, to give us hope and encouragement to continue the hard work of serving together to build His church. Let's begin reading in chapter 2, verse 1. In the seventh month, on the twenty-first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations, so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give Peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Before we get into the outline, I just want to set the scene with the information from this first verse. It says, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month. Does that mean anything to you? The seventh month, the 21st day of the month? Probably not. What if I said, the seventh month and the fourth day of the month, or the fourth of July. Is there a whole bunch of things that come to your mind when I mention the fourth of July? For many of us, when we think of the fourth of July, we think of big barbecue celebrations, the evening ending in fireworks. The fourth of July, it's a common culturally recognized day. We all have a similar understanding and an experience of that day. And so when someone mentions the 4th of July, we automatically have a context for it. All these things that are going on on that day. And this day mentioned in this text would have been just as easily recognizable for all the Jews, though we just pass over it as it doesn't mean anything, just another day on the calendar. But in Ezra 3, the people are described as setting up the altar when they got there, worshiping according to the law. And it appears from Haggai and Ezra that they continued to do that over the years until Haggai prophesied here about 15 years later. This day, the seventh month, the 21st day, is the day that Haggai brings this message. And it's on a feast day where everyone is gathered for worship and celebration. That's one day toward the end of of a week-long celebration, actually. And it's in the midst of a very busy month of celebration. According to Leviticus 23, the first day of the seventh month, the first day of this month, they would have observed a one-day feast called the Feast of Trumpets. And then on the tenth day of the month, they would have observed the Day of Atonement, where no work was to be done at all. And then five days later, on the fifteenth day of the seventh month, they were to observe the Feast of Booths also called the Feast of Ingathering, celebrating the harvest. They would do that for seven days, followed by an eighth day of holy convocation. And during this whole time, they would be living in those booths, those temporary tents, to remember God bringing them up out of Egypt in the first exile. As they lived in tents through the wilderness, they remembered that. And it is on this final day of this feast of booze, the day before they are to have a holy convocation that Haggai delivers this message to the people. So they're all gathered there for worship, as they were when we talked about in the first chapter, when Haggai addresses them. And he brings this message to them. And we see three things in Haggai's message. What we see here, the three points for your outline, is a report of discouragement, 
An exhortation of comfort and a message of hope. A report of discouragement, an exhortation of comfort, and a message of hope. Let's look at the report of discouragement in verse 2. Haggai is told to speak to Zerubbabel and Joshua and all the remnant of the people and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? So Haggai is again commanded to deliver a message, but now along with Zerubbabel and Joshua, the remnant is addressed. The remnant refers to those who are left, those who survived the exile, the covenant community remaining alive. And Yahweh delivers through Haggai three initial questions. Look at verse 3. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? Haggai calls on those who were little children about 68 years ago who saw the temple before it was destroyed. These people living, they would have been in their 70s and their 80s. They survived the exile living in Babylon and then they survived the trip back to Jerusalem. And he calls on them, remember this house in its former glory. And then he asks a second question. How do you see it now? It's been less than a month since they started the work. And they've had a very busy month of feast days and celebrations where work probably was not done. Not to mention the harvest that they just got done doing. So the temple, it's probably in a similar state when they left off in Ezra 4. Foundation was laid, but that's about it. They've only had about a month to work on it, so there's probably not a lot of progress. So the temple probably looked like it did in Ezra 4 when the people who had seen it before, they were weeping because of how pathetic it looked compared to when they had left. Compared to how they remembered it. And back in Ezra 4, there was a majority of the people rejoicing that the foundation to the temple was laid, while those who had seen it in its former glory wept. Some were joyful, but others not so much. And here in Haggai, we don't get the sense that anyone was really excited about the work or the progress that had been done. In fact, it was worse than little progress in their eyes. God who knows their hearts, He asks the third question by Haggai the prophet, and He says, is it not as nothing in your eyes? Have you ever worked on something for a significant amount of time only to really have it amount to nothing? You've ever, if you've ever done a project only really to have to tear it down and start over? To work on something and feel as if you're working and making no progress, you're working for, towards nothing, making no progress. There are feelings of dejection, discouragement, that this thing you put all this work into, it's just really amounting to nothing. That's how the people felt. The work that they had done, it felt like they were getting nowhere. They felt like it was nothing. The state that the temple was in now felt like it was nothing compared to how they remembered the temple that Solomon had built. The one that they remember. And what they had done might as well be considered nothing compared to where they needed to go. And not only did they compare it to what they had known previously, but they might even have had higher expectations. Because while they were in exile in Babylon, after the destruction of the temple, Ezekiel prophesied to them that an even bigger temple complex would be built. So perhaps they even had higher expectations than what they had seen before. I mean, we as Americans, we know it's the goal to build bigger and better. But what they were accomplishing was pitiful in their own eyes compared to what was before. But, mind you, it had only been a month. I mean, it took Solomon seven years to build. What did the people actually expect to get done in a month? 
Well, the reality is, whatever they expected, whatever they did accomplish in that time, the people were discouraged by it and they needed some encouragement. Which leads us to point two, an exhortation of comfort. An exhortation of comfort. The people were weak and discouraged, frail in their wills, and they were ready to crumble and quit. They didn't need to be confronted again and admonished. They needed to be comforted and encouraged. They were faintly burning wicks and they didn't need to be stepped on or they would be snuffed out. Look at verses 4 and 5 with me again. It says, Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. It says, Yet now. It's a little phrase that's often used to mark a transition from the past to the present. Haggai, he recognizes they're looking back and he draws their attention to the present. He immediately forces their attention to the present and later to the future, but connects the past to the present. It's a recognition of drawing out what is in their hearts, recognizing their discouragement, but then calling them to set their minds on something else. He says, be strong. It's an imperative verb. It means to be strong, to grow strong, to prevail over in battle, to have courage, or to have your heart strengthened. And in some contexts, the imperative is used in tandem with another imperative, a saw, the verb to do, that's actually what's used later when it says work. And when it's used in tandem like this, it's a formula used to encourage someone to resolute action. So Yahweh first calls the people to firmness, to be resolute, to be strengthened. And it's not a physical strength, but a mental strength. Sure, they might have been physically tired, but they certainly were mentally weak and they needed to be resolute in their hearts. That what God had called them to do was what was right. It was going to please Him. Be resolute in the heart. And this command to be strong, it's repeated three times. Once commanding Zerubbabel, once commanding Joshua, and once commanding all of the remnant. And what's important is these are all in the singular form. And it's, you know, understandable that the singular form is used for Zerubbabel and Joshua, but why with the remnant? Well, he's commanding every individual in the remnant to be resolved. Each individual person is to take up this command and be resolved in their heart that the building, the temple is necessary and glorifying to God. There's the individual command that every individual is to be resolved in their hearts. But then there's the other command at the end of that sentence to work. And this is not a singular command. It's a plural command. So it is you be resolved and you be resolved and you be resolved and you be strengthened and you all go up to work together. There's an individual but also a corporate aspect there. There's a corporate goal of coming together and building the temple as a people. Each of you be strong, and you all work together. And if the individual pieces are strong, we'll make a very strong corporate body to get things done. So there's the exhortation to be strong and to work, but then the Lord provides them with the substance that they're going to be strengthened by, that they are to strengthen their minds with, the encouragement that they need to be resolved in their hearts. Look at verse 4. Yet now be strong, go down to the end, for I am with you, 
declares the Lord of hosts. Be strong and work because I am with you. And you may be sitting there thinking, is that it? Is that all you got for me? Because I think as believers, we tend to take for granted the presence of God, the power of God. Because we have become so used to living by His power that we just go about our daily lives without really thinking that we are walking every step of the way by His strength. We don't appreciate the abiding presence of God in our hearts because we don't regularly recognize the essential nature of it in our life. Just like we don't appreciate our internal organs until one of them starts failing. Then all of a sudden we realize there's something there that's always operating without us even realizing it. We take it for granted. Moses, however, knew the importance of God's presence. After the golden calf incident in Exodus 32, God told Moses, He said, tell Israel in in Exodus 33.5, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. And then later in the chapter, Moses asked the Lord, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from this place. Moses knew that God's presence, that is what made the people of Israel special. It was the presence of God that preserved their life. It was the presence of God that was leading them and eventually empowering them to conquer the promised land and fulfill all of His promises. And Moses knew that without Yahweh's presence, they were hopeless and doomed to failure, to succumb to sin and death. One commentator says that when Haggai mentions the covenant there in verse 4, it's a reference to Exodus chapter 32 where the covenant is renewed and the presence of God is promised to go out with them and lead them and cause them to prevail. So we need to recognize the importance of the presence of the Spirit of the Lord in our life. That it is His strength by which we are going to accomplish all of that work. And then there's a reiteration of this at the end of chapter 5. He says, My Spirit remains in your midst. Remains is a participle that refers to standing in position. And the participle indicates a durative idea. My Spirit endures with you. It remains in your midst. So when the people are discouraged in the work of the temple, they are encouraged and comforted by God by Him directing their eyes to Himself. He tells them to be strengthened by looking to Him, by being reminded that He is among them. Not only is He the power that is going to to produce all of this work in them, to stir it up in them to do it, but He's also reminding them that He is among them As we looked at last week in chapter 1, His presence also means that He is pleased with them. That they're glorifying Him in this work. He tells them to be strengthened because while this work that they're doing seems like nothing to them, it is the work that God is pleased with. Sure, it might seem like nothing to them, But by their being faithful, regardless of the progress that they make, they're pleasing Him by doing the work. So he says, be encouraged. While this work seems like nothing, God is pleased by it. No longer is He set against against you because you don't care about His house. No longer are you walking in the way of cursing being cursed by Him and all your efforts being frustrated by Him, but you're walking in the path of obedience. And Haggai tells them, God tells them, I know the work is hard, but I am with you. I am for you, not against you. I am pleased by you. I am being glorified by you doing this regardless of how hard it is. Regardless of how much progress you think is being made, I am encouraged. So continue to work. Continue to be faithful. Continue to be faithful. 
I am being glorified among my people. So he says, each of you be encouraged and all of you go up and work together. As we turn to apply some of this, I want to go back and strengthen something that I said the last couple of weeks to make an appropriate application out of this. I think the Lord used my weakness in understanding the text in its entirety uh, for your benefit. I see God's kind hand of providence in this for you all because my exhortation to you to prioritize the Lord's Day worship was telling you, hey, the bar is here. This is where we need to get to. When in reality, the people of Israel, they were already there. They were, they were prioritizing the feast days. They were at everything already. And Haggai is actually saying, no, the bar is actually up here. And so I said, we need to get here. The bar is actually up here. So prioritizing the days of worship, they're already doing that in the text. And Haggai was calling them to more. To active service in building the temple. So take all the exegesis that I explained the last couple weeks and just strengthen or sharpen the application to all of us to corporately come together to work. But work for what? As New Testament Christians, work for what? What's the New Testament equivalent? Well, take your copy of the Bible, of your Scriptures, and go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. But keep your finger in Haggai so you can get back there easily. A hard book to find. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul begins by talking about salvation being by grace through faith. He tells the Ephesians that they were far off as Gentiles, but having been brought near by the blood of Christ and saved, they have been brought near to the covenant of Christ. They've been given salvation. And then look at verse 19. Ephesians 2.19 says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. For the Jews, the temple was the central place of worship. It was where they gathered together to worship, to hear the Word of God. It was where truth was proclaimed. It was where truth was taught. It was where the true faith was perpetuated from generation to generation. And for the New Testament believers, those who repent and believe... We are the temple of the Lord. And each of us individually are bricks in that temple. Not a physical building, but the people are the temple being built together, built up together as the body of Christ. And each local congregation, as ours is here, is being built up by teachers and shepherds given to it to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 that all those who are equipped are then doing the work of the ministry until we all attain the unity of faith. So this is the New Testament context of the work of building God's temple, the people of God, the church. So with this in mind, keep a finger in Ephesians and go back to Haggai. I want to begin to pull all this back together to encourage you in this difficult work of serving faithfully in the church, sometimes exhaustively. So the Lord calls all of us, each and every one of us, to be resolved in our hearts, to be strong, to be firm in your mind that this is what God wants you to do. Building His church is that goal, the primary goal, the primary priority of our life. Each of you be resolved in his heart and then all come together and do this work as a corporate body of building up his church. In the New Testament context, 
Haggai is an exhortation to serve in the local church. The application of it, not a changing of the fulfillment of it, but an application of it. Just as Paul talked about building the church in Ephesians chapter 2. So again, attendance isn't the standard. You have to serve in the building up of the body. You have to serve to further the evangelism and discipleship of the church. This work that we do includes everything from taking care of this physical building because we have to have a local place to meet. We have to have a place to function as the church. Everything from taking care of this building to red team evangelism to serving on Sunday mornings in any capacity that we might have an orderly service weekly discipleship ministries, you name it. And Haggai told the people who were faithfully attending that they needed to step up their game, that that simply wasn't enough to even attend regularly. That they still weren't prioritizing God until they were willing to sacrifice their free time and serve together as a corporate body. To exemplify before one another in the watching world that Yahweh really was their God by building the temple. He really was their priority. And we're all called to do the same thing. Not just faithfully attend, though that's part of it, but faithfully serve as we are able. And maybe you have been faithfully serving for a time, but you're discouraged in ministry. Maybe you look at your ministry efforts and you think all that's amounted to nothing. Maybe you've been witnessing or discipling someone and there just seems to be no fruit. Maybe they just forsake the faith altogether. The work is hard. And it often feels like all of our work amounts to nothing. But be encouraged. God encourages them here by telling them, I am with you. God is with you. He is pleased by your faithful service. He's pleased by your faithful obedience to do the hard work of serving in His church. See, God takes their eyes off of the, maybe the rubble that's still standing behind them. He takes their eyes off of their progress or lack of progress. And building the temple, and he says, Keep your eyes on me. I am with you. Be resolved to work faithfully, and I will be pleased and glorified in that. And for us, as New Testament believers, we know that we do the work, but God gives the growth. We can't make people saved, we can't make people grow in their sanctification. So we know we just are called to be faithful. But remember, God is pleased by that. God is glorified by that, regardless of the fruit that's produced. And that's the comfort of the abiding Spirit mentioned at the end of verse 5. God's Spirit abides with us to accomplish the covenant goals that all who are called might come. We are faithful to do the hard work and proclaim the Gospel, equipping the saints, evangelizing, discipling. And God's abiding Spirit will work in the hearts of those whom He has called and they will come. We can be certain that there will be fruit, though maybe not immediately in our time do we see it. There will be fruit that all those whom God has called will come. Because His Spirit will work in their hearts. His Spirit will regenerate according to God's will. And that same Spirit abides in us to empower us to be the means by which He accomplishes that work. So if you are discouraged, take your eyes off of what you feel is a failure or a lack of progress and look to God. He's the one that gives the growth. 
As a church, we simply put our hands to the plow and we go back to work praying that the Lord will bring forth growth. And so, beloved, I would implore you, if you are a member here, you're discouraged, keep your eyes on the Lord. Be encouraged by His pleasure in your faithful service. It is glorifying to Him, though you feel as if it's nothing. But if you're a member here and you're not serving corporately with the saints to further the Gospel, you need to get involved. There's a clear corporate call here for the people to work together as the people of God in the local context. It isn't just for your personal ministry over here. It's a call to corporate work in the context of a local church. So I would encourage you to get involved. If you don't know where, you can talk to any of those ushers, you can talk to any of the deacons, you can talk to any of the elders, talk to anybody around you and ask them, hey, what are you, where are you serving? Can I serve alongside you? But don't sit on the sidelines. Maybe you feel you can't serve physically because maybe you're older or your health doesn't allow you to be here helping in certain aspects. The rest of the body needs moral support and prayer support because they can often become discouraged. I mean, Haggai was addressing people who were in their 70s and their, in their 80s. I don't think those people were cutting stone or lifting stone to, to build the temple. So what can you do? You can encourage and you can pray. That is a very important ministry of the church. Go back to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3 the context of Paul writing to the church that they might be built up together in unity. He prays for their physical strength. He prays for their strength to do the task. He asks them not to lose heart in verse 13 and then prays for them in verses 14 to 21. But look at 14 to 21 with me. For this reason... Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. If you are unable to serve in certain capacities, you can still serve in this very necessary and vital way in praying for the saints. Pray this prayer for those whom you know are laboring. Pray for the red team as they go out, for their encouragement, for their faithfulness. Pray for those who take care of the building, for those who are discipling and counseling. Pray this for them. And then I would just encourage you to write them a note and tell them that you are praying for them. The church in Ephesus here, they were encouraged because Paul wrote them and told them he was praying this for them. So do the same. It's a necessary and vital ministry that really anyone can do. Yet it's often neglected. It's vital for the encouragement of the body to continue on in the hard work and often discouraging work of evangelism and discipleship. So be strengthened, be resolved in your mind, and go serve together in the building up of the local body of Christ. And be encouraged that God is pleased by your faithfulness. He is at work among you and within you even when you think your work amounts to nothing, He gives the growth. We just need to be faithful to do the work. And when we get discouraged, we keep our eyes on 
Him and remember that He is pleased by our faithfulness. And the final comfort God gives to His people, now you can go back to the book of Haggai, final comfort God brings to His people, which in the Scripture it often accompanies the promise that God is with you, is at the end of five, do not fear. Fear not. This phrase, do not fear, often accompanies the promise of God's presence when God has secured their victory over enemies. They're getting ready to go into battle and God says, I've already secured the victory, fear not. He uses it when He has promised them success because He will bring it about by the power of the Spirit. Be comforted. God is with you. He is pleased by you. And don't fear. He's already accomplished all of this. He secured the victory. God is with them, not against them. He's with them to make sure that the goal is accomplished. And they do not need to fear. And in particular, judgment, which is what the following point brings to light. And that leads us to point three, a message of hope. We are to not fear, but what are the people to not fear in this Context. Well, he's about to give them something that would otherwise terrify them, and so he's trying to comfort them ahead of time. Look, don't be afraid. We often see this when angels appear. They say, hey, don't be afraid, and then they give a message of revelation. The immediate comfort is that God is with us. God is pleased by our service. Even if we feel like it amounts to nothing, but then he gives some future hope to set their hard work in a larger picture. Tries to paint the larger picture for them to see that their work does amount to something. Look at verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. For, the little word for for, indicates grammatically that this is an explanation of something that came before. This is an explanation for why they should not fear and why they should be encouraged. God reveals something that would be otherwise terrifying. He says, I will shake. And then He basically says everything. I will shake. It's a special form of a Hebrew Verb a hiphil, and it's in a participle, and it indicates a continual series of shakings. Now, I don't know how many of you have experienced an earthquake, but even minor earthquakes can be unsettling. We experienced a few minor earthquakes when we were out in California at seminary. Very unsettling. Someone who experienced the massive earthquake in Haiti over a decade ago, he told me that when it happened, the ground moved like the ocean. Rolling like the ocean. Buildings just dropping. Absolutely terrifying. I can't imagine being there. It's hard to even imagine the ground doing that. Absolutely terrifying as things come crashing down around you. And the people of Israel, it's, the topography is very similar to that of California. They're actually very prone to earthquakes. So the people would have known what it was like. They would have been otherwise terrified. But God told them, fear not. But I'm going to bring about a shaking of the earth. But it's not just the earth. It also says the heavens. You think the shaking of the earth is scary? How about when the sun is shaken, the stars fall from heaven? I mean, we can't even imagine what that would be like. How terrifying that would be for the sun just to go out one day. Things falling from the heavens. Nearly all commentators, not just premillennial, but they agree that this is eschatological language. This is language concerning the end times. And so Haggai, he transports the minds of the readers to the future. The future of hope and comfort for these people. And so let's read this larger section, 6-9, to nine, and then we'll talk about this as a future hope, not only for the people of Israel, but also for us. 
For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Haggai refers to glory in there several times, and there are two aspects to this glory. There's the first, the treasures and the gold and the silver, the physical structure, the glory and the beauty and the magnificence of the physical structure is certainly there. But there's also that term, I will fill. And when this term is used in reference to the temple, it's always a reference to the manifest presence of God. The glory of the cloud descending upon the temple, indicating God's presence with them. And what these people would be familiar with, what this would invoke in their minds is the prophecy of Ezekiel. So turn back with me to the 43rd chapter of Ezekiel, just to look at this, what Ezekiel had prophesied to them. Ezekiel 40 to 48, we obviously don't have time to cover all of that. Ezekiel is given a vision from God where he's sent to, with a, an angel, to measure this temple complex. But it's not the measurements of a past temple area, it's a future temple complex prophesied by Ezekiel because nothing has ever been seen like this. And this would have given the people hope to rebuild the temple. That this is what lay in their future. Something even more grandiose than Solomon's temple that he built before. Ezekiel 43, we're just going to read the first nine verses uh, for the sake of time. Ezekiel 43 1 through 9. Ezekiel says, Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters. And the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city. And just like that vision I had seen by the Chabar Canal, and I fell on my face. So stop right there. The vision that he had seen before was of Jerusalem being destroyed and the glory departing the temple. Now he's going to see the glory return as their hope of God coming to dwell with him again. Verse 4, As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And while the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple, and he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne, and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. And the house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings by their whoring and by their dead bodies of their kings at their high places, by setting their thresholds by my threshold and their doorposts besides my doorposts, with only a wall between me and them. They have defiled my holy name by their abominations that they have committed. So I have consumed them in my anger. Now let them put away their whoring and their dead bodies and their kings far from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever. So this glory returning and filling the temple is what the people were gave them hope as they were in exile that this temple would one day be built and that the glory of the Lord would come back to dwell with them. And so when Haggai says, I will fill this temple and the glory, the former glory will be greater, the latter glory will be greater than the former, this is what it would have invoked in their mind. Bringing hope of the future when God's glory would return to dwell in their midst. There's kind of... There's some details that are left out in Ezekiel's account here. But this is the scene that Haggai is prophesying. Haggai is encouraging them with this hope that one day all of their work that they're doing will culminate 
in this, the return of the manifest presence of God among them. But Haggai, back in Haggai, he mentions the shakings of the heavens and the earth. And there's a couple of other prophets that shed light on that. But for the sake of time, go to Zechariah. Many prophets that we could look at to help shed light on Haggai's prophecy here. But go back to, go to Zechariah. It's just the book right after Haggai. A couple of other books are Isaiah chapter 2, Micah chapter 4. They're very similar and nearly identical in that they speak of latter days when the mountain that the house of the Lord is on, that is the mountain that they're working on, they're building the temple on, it will be raised up above all the other hills and the nations shall flow to Jerusalem to hear God teach them His ways. And then they mention that there will be no more war because as Ezekiel indicated, Jesus the king or the one who returns has just slaughtered all the enemies who rose up against him. All those who are unfaithful he has put to death. But look at Zechariah 14 and we'll begin in verse 1. Ezekiel 14, verse 1. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord. So again, that future day. When the spoil will be taken from you, will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. You can understand that as during the tribulation time. But then, verse 3, the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mountain shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. On that day, there shall be no light, cold, or frost. And there shall be a unique day in which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be a light. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea, as it shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate, to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. And it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet, and their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. And on that day a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them, so that each will seize the hand of another, and the hand of one will be raised against the hand of another. And even Judah will fight at Jerusalem." And the wealth of the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. So stop there for a moment. If you look back up at verse 4, Yahweh, he lands on the Mount of Olives. His feet touch the Mount of Olives, which is east, just across the valley east of the Temple Mound in Jerusalem, which is where Ezekiel saw him coming from. As soon as he touched the Mount of Olives, there was a massive earthquake that split it in two, possibly dividing the land all the way to the Mediterranean Sea, all the way in the other direction to the Dead Sea. And it's so catastrophic, so cataclysmic, that everything around Jerusalem is leveled. Jerusalem is raised up and everything else around it is leveled. 
I mean, imagine if we looked out here to the Rocky Mountains and one of those was standing and everything else, there was such a major earthquake that everything else around it was leveled. We can't even imagine the seismic result that would ripple around the world from something that catastrophic. But it would be a worldwide effect. So he describes it a little more in a little more detail there what Haggai is talking about, the shaking of the heavens and the earth. And in, ha- in uh, Zechariah here, verse 6, there seems to be a cosmic disturbance where there is no light, which would normally mean if there's no light, then it's going to be cold and freezing. And yet, he emphasizes that there, there's no light, and yet there's also no cold and no frost. Why? Because it's a unique day that the Lord sustains the earth even if He does blot out the sun. But at evening time, there is light. So there's some kind of cosmic disturbance where the light goes out for a time and comes back. And after the Lord destroys all the nations that come to wage war against Him, all their treasures are brought in. And according to verse 14, Haggai says, all the gold and silver I'm going to bring in Zechariah gives us in greater detail what that picture looks like. But this is Christ's second coming. When He will come at the end of the tribulation and decimate all unbelievers who raise themselves up, who worship the beast and fight along with the beast. And He will set up His throne in Jerusalem, in the temple, and reign from it. After this cataclysmic judgment, He will set up His kingdom on earth. And at the end of the tribulation, He will return, He'll do this, He'll reign from Jerusalem, He'll begin to reverse the effects of the fall. Where the Dead Sea is now is explained as returning to being a land fruitful as it was in the time of Lot. For a thousand years, He will begin to reverse the effects of the fall and He will rule from His throne in Jerusalem according to Revelation 20. And he'll do that for a thousand years. And what will be going on for a thousand years? Well, look possibly at the next page, Zechariah 14, verses 16 to 19. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem, so after Jesus comes at the end of the tribulation, everyone who survives that shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts and to keep the Feast of Booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King year in and year out, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord affects the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. So for a thousand years, Jesus will reign from His throne in Jerusalem and every year, all the nations will be required to go up and worship for the Feast of Booths. Jesus will rule with a rod of iron from Jerusalem because there will be those born who rebel against Him though He sits on the throne in Jerusalem, though He's a perfect and benevolent King, they rebel. They refuse to go and honor Him, and so He strikes them with a plague. At the end of the thousand years, all the rebels who have not been so bold as to go up, they've, been, they've rebelled against Him, they have not gone up to honor Him. He will, Satan will come. He'll gather all of those together for one final battle where Jesus will fell them all with a single word. And then, He will create a new heavens and a new earth where we will enter into a blessed state with no more death, no more pain, no more crying, where we'll dwell with Him forever. So Haggai is drawing people's attention to the future, to the coming of the King where the kingdom will be reestablished here on earth. But so what? Yahweh's point here in Haggai is to give the people hope. 
He's drawing their attention to the future day when judgment will be exercised against the whole world. When God would come to dwell among His people. When God's kingdom would come and reign over all the nations. And He was encouraging them by telling them that this house, the house that they were working on, God would come and fill this house, Haggai said, with glory. That is to say there's a continuity between the house and its former glory when it was physically the temple of Solomon built, the current physical structure and the future structure referred to. They're all referred to as this house. Haggai wanted them to know that what they were taking part in, their hard work, was all to be fulfilled in the future. What they were building would contribute to the bringing about of this future glory, which would be a peace in Jerusalem like they had never known. It was the promise that all their hard work, though they thought it was nothing now, it was promised to be successful. It was a promise that they would prevail. From their perspective, Haggai was telling them, you will be successful, you will prevail in building this temple because this is what the future looks like for you. Though your work seems as nothing right now. But how can we say they were successful when the temple they built was destroyed? Well, because it was less about the physical structure. Though the physical structure was important, it was about the people setting God as the priority and worshiping God as God. It was about the true believers worshiping God appropriately. And yes, building the temple was a part of that at that time. It was about that remnant worshiping God as God and perpetuating the faith down through the generations. Their work of repentance, which was demonstrated in building the temple, trusting in God, it was passed down to the subsequent generations, passed down through the ages to us. It was their faith and their trust in God that led to the faithful generations of Jesus' time preserving and practicing true religion. It was taken up by the apostles and spread throughout the nations. And that's our encouragement, beloved. Not only is God pleased with us and glorified in our hard work, in our corporate service, but in the end, we are successful and we will prevail. All of our hard work culminates in this. The coming of Christ. When the number of the church is completed and He comes to take them to heaven. And should Christ tarry another thousand years, long after we're dead, will all of our chair stacking and our evangelism and discipleship, long after we're dead, will it matter? Yes. Because it is through the building of Christ's church that the faith is perpetuated down through the generations. And the building of Christ's church that we are doing will redound to His glory through the ages and into eternity. So beloved, when you're discouraged, and it seems like the work and the service and the church that you're doing, it's amounting to nothing. When it says nothing in your eyes, remember first that God is pleased by your hard work, your faithfulness. He is glorified no matter how mundane. He is pleased even if there is little fruit. He's pleased with your faithfulness to do the work. And remember that though it seems as nothing in your eyes, it really does matter. Your faithful work in gospel ministry, in building the local church, is the means by which Christ will perpetuate the true faith into the future. And it is the means by which He will usher in the kingdom of God on earth. So beloved, don't get discouraged with service and go back to busying yourself with your own houses. Burying yourself in things that don't matter. Rather, busy yourself with 
the work that will redound to the glory of God for eternity. That's what Haggai was encouraging the people with. That's what the Lord wanted to encourage the people with. And I hope you are encouraged by that. And next week when we come back, it's going to be only more encouragement because the Lord reveals through Haggai that there is a corporate reward for our faithfulness and there's an individual reward for our faithfulness in the end. So come back next time to hear that. Let's pray. Oh gracious Heavenly Father, who are we that you have chosen us to be a part of this work? That you have chosen us and made us part of your body that we have believed and trusted and repented and turned to you for salvation. And may we continue to repent of busying ourselves with our own homes and neglecting gospel work, gospel ministry. May you continually give us encouragement that you're pleased by this hard work. May you continually put before our minds that this is the one thing. Though Solomon was discouraged with all that he did in this life because when he was dead, it was all going to disintegrate. Even if the next person did well with it, eventually it would disintegrate. We have such greater work to do. We have the promise from you that all of our work is not going to perish with the next generation, but it is going to perpetuate the true faith down through the generations. All because your Spirit dwells among us and is working in and through us. So I pray, Lord, that we would be resolved individually in our hearts that we would go up and work together at this task of building this local church and serving you faithfully. Stir our hearts up to do that, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name.